Welcome to the Disability And podcast, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Grey Eyes Associate Director, Nikki Miles Wilding, chats with paratriathlete, paracyclist and two times world paraclimbing champion, Fran Brown, ahead of the Tokyo 2021 Paralympics. Hello and welcome to the Disability and Podcast. I'm Nikki Mars Weldon, Associate Director at Grey Eye Theatre Company. I am a white woman with bleached white hair. It's short on the sides and a bit fluffy on the top today. I have black rimmed glasses piercing my left nostril and I'm wearing a black hoodie. Behind me is a white wall. And I am joined today uh, with the fantastic uh, Fran Brown. Hello, Fran. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I'm Fran. I am a white uh, middle-aged woman. I have really short hair that is sadly a bit of a mess, having just come out of a heat chamber, and I'm looking quite red and um, slightly rosy, put it that way. I'm wearing a blue Nike hoodie, and I'm sat in a altitude uh, hotel room at the Elite Athlete Centre in Loughborough. Behind me is a standard hotel double bed, um, a little bit of brown wall decoration, um, a couple of lights and my big orange bike box that my bike lives in. Brilliant. That was a great description, Fran. I love rosy. Rosy face sums it up nicely. Yeah. Um, and just to give you a bit of a, an intro, Fran, even more of an intro than me just going Fran Brown. Fran is a power triathlete, a paracyclist, physiotherapist, percussionist, and two times world power climbing champion. Uh, Fran's currently training before heading to Tokyo as Fran has been selected as one of GB's para triathlon squad. So many P's, Fran. Do you only do stuff that begin with P? Yeah, clearly. Like, I need to find <laughs> more sports that start with P. <laughs> we were saying, what was that? Para power lifting? Power lifting, yeah, maybe. Parachuting? <laughs> we met back doing the 2012 opening ceremony. And as I was reading your website, I was like, wow, I feel so starstruck sat here like talking to you the fact that you are training to go and represent GB in Tokyo is like I just want to kind of do a little like bowing down to you Fran I think it's epic um so how are you and how's training going I'm good a little bit tired but in the middle of our prep block so we we fly in a week a week in a week in a day um so yeah it's not too bad going we're doing loads of heat training at the moment so we're in the heat chamber trying to acclimatize to the conditions in Tokyo so you kind of ride your bike in the heat for an hour hour and a quarter or run in the heat and then we're still swimming and running and biking outside to do all our sessions and gym sessions so it's just a bit hectic and I'm obviously not at home I'm up here in Loughborough which is where this most of the squad are based so living out of a bag for best part of six weeks comes with its own challenges feel like I'm in reasonable shape and yeah looking forward to actually getting on the plane now in a week basically just sticking off the heat sessions because they're a bit grim <laughs> yeah it'd be much different won't it to the heat than over here 
like oh definitely like when when you get outside with the airflow even though it's hot and humid it just feels so much nicer than sitting in a heat chamber where there's like zero airflow and all you do is sweat so yeah I'm, but that's the point is that then that feels easy to do hard efforts when you get there so yeah I'm looking forward to going and yeah capping off the draining really and what's it like when you get to Tokyo then how how imminent is it before you have you have your race we fly on the 13th land on the 14th because we're flying down to Miyazaki we've got an internal flight after we get to Tokyo so you have to go through our like covid testy immigration stuff in Tokyo that takes quite a few hours I think that's like six or seven hours in the airport and then get another flight down to Miyazaki where our holding camp is we're going somewhere we've been before so we know what we're going to get so that's really cool it's a really good training base you can like amazing places to run and ride and there's some open water swimming we've got a hotel pool so really nice setup for us and it's exactly where the olympic guys that have just been uh went so we're kind of copy doing the same as them so from a sports perspective we we know the ins and outs but then we go into tokyo about 12 days later on the 24th so the day of the opening ceremony we fly into tokyo um and then I race on the 28th. So we've got a few days in Tokyo first. And then the rest of my squad race on the 29th because it's four categories a day. And we've got people, we haven't got people in every category. So there's two of us that race the first day and then other people race the second day. And then we fly back on the 31st because you have to, you have to fly back within 48 hours of your event. So we're lucky that we've got a reserve date of the 30th in case of weather because we do an open water swim, it might be too choppy, it might affect the water quality, it might be too windy. So we've got that reserve date. Oh, obviously thunderstorms as well. No one wants to swim in open water in a thunderstorm. <laughs> Japan has quite a lot of those. So we, but hence why we're flying back on the 31st. So we've kind of always got, I've almost got three days afterwards. So, yeah. The entire Paralympics have been pushed back a year. How has that impacted on your training? Oh, well, I'm like number one, that's partly why I just want to get it done now, like another year. <laughs> um, but I shielded. So when COVID started, I was actually on a camp in Spain and I'd been there for best part of seven weeks. And when we went, it wasn't there. It was Wuhan and no one had heard of anything else. And like it wasn't anywhere. And then it kicked off in Italy a little bit after about five weeks. And we were like, mm, do we need to be worried or is this all a bit overkill? And then I was supposed to be there for nine weeks. And after eight weeks, it looked like Spain had COVID, GB had COVID, and we looked like we were locking down. So we were basically told, come home. So we flew, I flew, I changed my flights and flew home like the next day. And the day I flew home was the day we started shielding, like shielding advice came out. So I pretty much went from a camp outside in Spain to staying in my house and not leaving the house. And I didn't swim for 14 months. I rode indoors and run, ran on a treadmill, which I was lucky enough to have for best part of nine ten months and then started going outside in like the end because I and I also I have Crohn's and I had a massive Crohn's flare at the same time potentially down to stress who knows and needed surgery so I had to wait until my surgery in August and then after that I then started training outside but then we had another lockdown and then I didn't swim until I was double vaccinated which by the that was late April early May this year so I've only had kind of four months of swimming and have you noticed the difference? Like, was it harder when you got back in the pool after 14 months? Or? Well, weirdly, we did lots of strength training to kind of try and stay, keep your upper body strong so that when we got back in, didn't get, pick up injuries. And weirdly, initially, it felt awful. Well, I lie. 
the first 50 meters felt amazing. Like I was Michael Phelps and I'd not lost anything and it was all great. And then I basically died. Um, but after that, the first few sessions felt horrible, but they came back remarkably quickly. And if anything, I'm now swimming faster having done less sessions. So I don't, it's strange. Quite a lot of our squad have said similar things. Like we've almost come back better now, whether it's because we're less fatigued because we didn't, we had that time off. Whether you've just had time to kind of reset your stroke and you get out of bad habits because you haven't used it for so long. Like, because when I started back, a lot of my first swims were technical, so I could kind of polish up my stroke. So I think in a way, it's strangely advantageous, but I still would have preferred not 14 months of feeling like I was training for two sports out of three. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be, what's that called? A para duathlon. Ah, see, get it's, a thing. it's just not a Paralympic thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? How you've all noticed that change, that you have come back faster. Yeah. I think it is just everyone's got out of their bad. Because swimming, it's really easy to develop bad habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just it's given everyone time to reset that and reset some fatigue. Yeah. And probably build more aerobic fitness before you get in the pool because we swam and because we ran and biked. Basically, once it was announced the games weren't happening, um, everybody went to their winter training. So I carried on bits and pieces until my surgery, but you went to like winter aerobic training, not the really hard stuff, which is what we've been doing in Spain. And I think that gave us a massive aerobic base to then start doing hard stuff on. So the hard, fast stuff came back quicker and therefore potentially add more headroom. And we've mentioned uh, a power triathlon. Yep. Could you just explain in more detail what it entails? What are the three sports? Yeah, sure. So power triathlon is swim, bike, run in that order. Um, the swim is 750 metres in open water. So there, you can do so power, the Paralympics in, is in open water. There are pool-based ones in the UK if you wanted to do a triathlon. Doesn't have to be it by so default on open water swim. So seven hundred and fifty meters. What yeah. a bog standard swimming pool is what twenty five meters. Thirty length? lengths of a twenty five meter pool. Wow, thirty lengths. Yeah, not then you get to push off the side. Yeah, in open water as well. Yeah, and like you said, who knows what the conditions of that open water is going to be? Yeah, and I've swum in some lovely open water, and I've also swum in some disgusting places that. You have to wonder what's in the water. What's the most disgusting place, or shall I not ask? We did a river swim at Europeans uh, two, three years ago in Estonia, and the rest of the venue was amazing, but the river was, like, murky brown. Like, you literally couldn't see your fingers if you touched your eye, practically. So, yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. It didn't smell great either. Not great. And where, where in Japan will you be in the ocean then, or is it a lake? We're in Adaiba Bay, which is part of Tokyo Bay, basically. So right right by, it's near the village. It's just on Adaiba Island, which is like one of the islands just across. So it's kind of, it's vaguely salt water, but so it's kind of the sea, but it's so inland from the sea that it's um, very, it gets really warm. So water temperature might be a bit, not an issue for us, but it will, it will be, we'll have to manage our temperature, certainly, because the water temperature for the Olympic races that have just happened at its hottest was 30.3, which if you think about a swimming pool is normally like 25 to 27. So how do you, like, how do you acclimatise to that? Like you swim in a warm pool, have a hot bath. So I'm swimming in a pool here that's 29, um, which suits me because cold water and my spasticity don't mix. So I would rather warm than cold. And it's obviously non-wetsuit. We do swim in wetsuits if the water temperature is below 24. 
but obviously, oh, wait, it's optional from 18 to 24, but you, yeah, everyone would swim in a wetsuit because you're faster. However, it's non-wetsuit, it'll be a non-wetsuit swim, so yeah, just swim in a warm pool, get used to a hot bath. It does feel slower swimming in a hot pool, even if you're swimming the same speed, it feels kind of sluggish. Okay. That's why Olympic pools are notoriously cold. So the 50 meter Olympic pool is actually always kind of 24, 25 because it feels faster. Wow. There's so much science to all this, isn't there? Yeah. So we swim, yeah, swim 750 meters, get out of the open water, do transition one. So the transitions in triathlon are almost like a fourth discipline, if you like, because they're like, it's all your total time. It's who crosses the line first. So if you take half an hour putting your shoes on, you've lost a chunk of time. So do transition one. So for me, I put on my cycling braces, my leg braces in as soon as I get out of the swim, basically. And then I run to where my bike is, grab my bike, well, put my helmet on and my glasses on. And there's rules that say you have to put your helmet on before you touch your bike or you get a penalty. So there's lots of things to remember. And then take my bike off the rack and then it's a 20K cycle. So 20 kilometer cycle. And then come back in, get off your bike, run in, put your bike into its rack, like hang it on the rack or push it. Sometimes it's a wheel one where you just push your wheel in, take your helmet off, put your run shoes. So for my case, I have different run braces to cycling braces. So I change to my run braces, much like the girls in my classification are often above knee amputees on one leg. So they'll change their leg for a different prosthetic. So a blade for running and a normal leg for cycling. Um, or some of them don't, some of them only cycle with one leg. They prefer to just put the power out with one leg. So they'll then put a running blade on. And then, yeah, it's a five kilometer run. Slash yeah. in my case. <laughs> no, I do run it. It's just, um, I tend to chomp it into run, walk, run, walk. It works better mm-hmm. for me. You must be like absolutely knackered by the time you get to run. Yep. The run is, the run, like running 5K for me with my disability is hard anyway. So it took me best part of seven years to get to being able to run 5K straight. I'm not then initially it was with crutches then it was with the right braces but then just being able to run a 5k without actually stopping at all let alone do it at race pace and then off a bike after a swim so yeah it's a massive struggle whereas some of the some of the uh we have arm amputees in the pt5 pts5s they obviously wouldn't find that as difficult they would find that similar to kind of an able-bodied person they're more impaired in the swim and on the bike for controlling the bike with one hand so that's why the classes kind of try to put people similarly together. It's it's a weird one. We do have quite a level playing field, but sometimes it just mixes strange. Dis- it's a bit like swimming where you'll have lots to, you might have short stature people and wheelchair users in the same class and you'd be like, how does that work? That's kind of how paratriathlon works, except the wheelchair users have their own class um, and they have two classes within that. So yeah, there's basically, just to explain paratriathlon, there's four ambulant classes so pts2 are the most impaired and i'm a pts2 threes are the next would be potentially a double baloney amputee or maybe somebody with hemiplegia on one side or somebody missing an arm like completely uh pts4s are normally kind of baloney single baloney amputees uh pts5s are arm impairments mostly but there are a couple of lower leg impairments in there um, but they'll basically be they're the least disabled least impaired i hate that word least disabled but that's what's in the manual least impaired ambulant class so they by ambulant i mean we ride a normal two-wheel bike it might have adaptations and you might use braces but we and we run and then there's the visually impaired class 
so they ride a tan they swim with a guide like tethered to a guide with a with a rope and then they ride a tandem and then they run holding a rope much like the athletics you would see and they have b1 b2 b3 and the b1s get a bit of a head start so they kind of start and then the others swim after them after a time so that it's a bit fairer and then there's the wheelchair classes two classes so the wheelchair guys swim uh they use a hand bike a recumbent lie down hand bike for the bike and then for their run they use a race chair standard like you would see on the track but and then they've got two classes split with disabilities so the more impaired if you've kind of got a upper trunk impairment as well and arms you get a bit of a head start on those that just have like lower trunk and lower limb impairments so yeah that's how it works out not all those classes are represented at the Paralympics yet though because we don't get a full complement of medals yet because paratriathlon's only in its second games so some classes were excluded from Rio, some classes are excluded from this Games, but they've given the opportunity this time for some people to race up. So there's in the girls, the PT4s and 3s, don't, there's not enough people to make races. And so they didn't get medals, but they can race up in the 5s if they've qualified. So some of the PTS4 girls are qualified to race in the 5s. So hopefully by Paris, we'll have, we'll have more, more complement because there's more people coming through. Yeah. So, and yeah. it is that, isn't it, of... of finding those young athletes to train to and if you don't know that sport exists or that you are able to take part then it's three sports so it's a lot of equipment and lots of like challenges to figure out so actually I can see why people are drawn to one of the sports but actually quite often that works in our favor because we can find people that are like they might be really good at swimming but they don't love it and then be like oh well, you'd be really good at so I think that's it's a good talent pathway into triathlon, even if people don't come into triathlon going. I don't think many people come into triathlon straight to triathlon. They do some, come from something else. I'm a bit strange with that, insofar as I came from paraclimbing, which isn't one of the three sports. It's all it's it's interesting, isn't it? You said around that language around more disabled, more impaired. Yeah. Like I love watching the Paralympics, but there's also part of me where I feel like like some of the language is quite different around it like particularly if like you know my background is social model where that thing where you know you're disabled by physical and attitudinal barriers and I just what is it like does it feel like you're being medicalized or do you get just get to a point where it doesn't phase you anymore because you're in it for the sport I think once you get into it it's for the sport when you go through the classification process it feels very much like that and I, everyone inevitably ends up with their classification at some point probably being questioned if you don't have a very clear-cut disability. So some people, obviously, if you're an amputee, it's not going to grow back. Um, Tell that to the PIP assessors. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're fairly set. But there's certainly the visually impairment class, the wheelchair class for some people, and people with neuro impairments like I have, we often get reassessed and it might be that you just have a fixed review and it gets reassessed in case you with training you improve and like it doesn't really improve your condition but then it that then becomes a bit medicalized because all the assessment is a bit like going for like a a medical but once you're in the system and once you're in the sport it just becomes about the sport like I don't think about my classification I just go on my training I'm I know I'm the slowest of all the people in our squad so if we go on a group ride or a group run or we're in the pool I'll be the slowest just because I have more challenges but I just see them as challenges I don't really see it as like a problem it's really I like it's really enlightened me this conversation and understanding the classification and yeah 
and just you know I'm probably the most unsporty person so it's great but then you know everybody's a kind of armchair wheelchair critic when we're watching the Olympics or the Paralympics aren't we like oh come on oh I could have done that yeah right when you watch the diving you're like that's a big splash oh they scored 10 yeah (laughs) there's always that moment where you're like I can do this come on I'm gonna get in training yeah yeah and then you're like no, it's just too cold in the swimming costume at the moment. It's fine. Yep. <laughs> and so what was your journey into sport? How did you, yeah. have you always been sporty? Um, to some extent, yes. My dad was a sailing instructor, outdoors instructor, always outdoorsy. My mum was a teacher, so it doesn't necessarily come from her side. She's quite musical. I get the musical element from my mum. When I was a kid, my, we lived in Cornwall. So I grew up in Cornwall, lived there until I was 18. My twin was really sporty, as in was fast track through England hockey. So my parents would trek up and put back and forth to Exmouth with her every two, three times a week for training with like one of the big squads in Exmouth and stuff. So I didn't do mainstream sport, partly because in school we were because we were twins. We wanted to be in different sets and different classes and different everything. And I therefore didn't want to play hockey because she played hockey. But I didn't want to play netball because I'm really short. And at four foot 11, you're crap at netball. Like everyone in my class could literally just hold the ball over my head. And I'd just be like, oh, this is boring. So I, my school offered stuff like rock climbing and outdoor sports and stuff on a Wednesday afternoon as an option for PE. So I did, I was like, oh, I'll try climbing. So I did, and we had an indoor climbing wall. So I did climbing every Wednesday. So I got into climbing and I competed. I did national level kids competitions like the British Youth Series and I enjoyed that and I canoed with a canoe club I did just standard I did gymnastics a little bit I swam with the swim squad for a little bit but yeah I wasn't the sporty one of the twins if you like until and then I went to university in Cardiff and still carried on with sport but just generally like the social mm, climbing club was more about drinking than climbing really and partying but we got we had some weekends away and it was awesome like the best part of uni life pretty much uh and then when I moved to London for a job I just started I carried on climbing and found a social circle and my social circle was climbers I didn't compete and it wasn't about performance at that point after doing the kids comps once I went to uni I didn't compete anymore I just did the social side I enjoyed I it was about keeping fit as well it was much like going to the gym only with climbing you do it with other people so and yeah and then I had my accident uh when I was 22 could it, going back to work was a bit weird like I had to change I, st- I stayed in theatre for a bit and then changed jobs but what was um, your job what was your job in theatre so I was deputy head of lighting on a show when I had my accident and then I went back as uh, deputy head of lighting on The Lion King well I went back to Greece and then I went I worked on Greece for a bit and then went to The Lion King and then gave gave it up because access to I couldn't climb ladders I couldn't lift lines couldn't do most of the stuff that was like the things that you need to do to be in electric like and being a lighting designer is so I still do freelance lighting design but that's it's not like a full full-time job it's very dependent on getting the right contacts and the right people so and even then access is still you can't go sit in the circle if you have to can't climb a million stairs so I I retrain I decided I wanted to retrain as a physio and it was from retraining as a physio that then I got into climbing competitions because I was going to the gym more. The physio crew went to the gym and I, my friends had told me about paraclimbing competitions. And I'd got back into climbing after my accident to stay with the same group of friends, initially just by going and sitting at the wall and not really climbing. 
like I'd belay other people and just then do the social bit but then I that quickly wore off and I got bored so I I'd got back into paraclimbing and one of my friends found a flyer for like the British paraclimbing series and was like oh you should enter this and I did I didn't really train for it the first year but um and then I got hooked because obviously I was all right at it. I then wanted to be good at it and I started using swimming as cross training which is then how I started into the journey that led me to paratriathlon was that yeah I started swimming for cross training and I started cycling to get to work so light in at uni like yep. design then went on to work in the west end in quite high profile west end shows there and if that was Greece and Lion King yep yeah, yeah I started on uh, I started on We Will Rock You was the first place but doing in-house electrics mm-hmm. rather than some so some show, not much show bits just bits and then, yeah, then I have an accident. Then I went to Greece, worked on Greece. Uh, as, well, as it, Greece was a weird one because I worked for the theatre, but they did all the show electrics. Okay. So it was a dual role, which was wonderful because you got to operate the show and you still got to do some stuff. You some got some day shifts. Um, and then worked on, and then I moved to, yeah, I moved to Deputy Head of Lighting on The Lion King when they were recruiting for their 10th birthday. So two years before the 10th birthday, they started they expanded their team a little bit to have people to do a rig change because they put in new movie lights and everything for the for the tenth birthday, and so I went in to basically help with that role because that was a bit more logistical and I, I operated the show mostly, so I operated. I think I did like some crazy amount of shit times I've seen that show, like yeah, because that was it was the most accessible bit of the job if you like, so. And I, I really enjoyed it there. I just had decided I wanted to retrain because the opportunities beyond that were slim as far yeah. as access in theatre was concerned in lighting. And I, I kept up my lighting design, which was the interesting bit I could still do. I just, I think if I hadn't had my accident, I'd have been quite happy as a chief LX, either touring or maybe moving into production LX, but I would have stayed in theatre. It wasn't that I desperately wanted out of the industry. I just didn't fit with but yeah, after my accident, it was too much, too challenging, really. Yeah, and particularly West End theatres, they are not the most accessible, are they? Let's let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, I can understand why they're ancient, but in some respects, there's a few things that could be better. Yeah. But yeah, it was never going to really work as a career. You sometimes you just have to draw a line and be like, mm, it probably I could probably make it work, but it's more effort than yeah. it's worth. Have I, have I got the energy to do it? And yeah, exactly. does it feel like a shared responsibility or is it just me banging the drum and nothing is... And that's done? literally what I was doing. Yeah. yeah. So what around, like, um, being a physiotherapist? Yeah. And also, like, has that has that impacted your your training? Your under, I suppose, giving you a better understanding of your own body as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, being a physio is really cool like I qualified after 2012 and I did NHS stuff so I worked in wheelchairs for a bit I worked for a wheelchair service because I was quite passionate about improving that and I was really enjoying that but then it was full-time and triathlon training was picking up and I like and the service I was working for wouldn't let me job share and were not super helpful about being flexible so I went the into irony a- of that the irony of yeah that. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I went into, I went, I found a research post and went into a respiratory research post for two years where I, and I gradually changed my hour. They were, they were the opposite. They were super flexible. Um, and then the role ended because the, uh, the study ended that I was working on. So that was a natural time to take a break from NHS work. 
So I kept up private work. So I worked, I worked for climbers because I was like, oh, I'm really interested in hands and hand therapy and upper limb therapy, especially as with my disability, I find it quite hard to lift really heavy things and move things around. So doing legs and stuff with people can be awkward, whereas hands is quite delicate and quite nuanced. So I did a lot of work. I set up a clinic to work with climbers and that was working quite well. I could work part-time, self-employed. You can do the hours you want to do around training. And then obviously with COVID, I had other people covering my clinic while I was away, but then all the climb was shut and all my clients disappeared. So I shut down the business because of the extra year and then I'll start again. But I don't know that I want to be self-employed again. I think I might go back and work with someone, but privately. Um, I've done my master's in sports and exercise medicine, so I wanted to I want to use that, basically. Um, as much as I love the wheelchair side, it's so... There's so many can't-change things that really need changing it's so i found it so demoralizing i found it super cool being able to help people out that potentially wouldn't have got the right equipment if i hadn't have been there to pull the right strings and tweak the right things and actually i as a wheelchair user myself because i still use a chair um for like when i'm recovering between sessions because walking my spasticity gets really high from training um just understanding the active user needs which is the bit that I think gets lost a lot of the time but then equally there's so much budgetary constraint and things I found it a little bit depressing it might be something I do go back to in the future but I've got options open but yeah it certainly taught me it's taught me a lot about my body it's taught me that if I get niggle because you're going to get niggles training as an athlete you're never going to be like completely injury free pain free but identifying when a pain is a adaptability good pain or just a little niggle like something that's going to settle in a couple of days and just changing your training slightly it's quite I'm quite good at whereas some athletes would just plow through and then get injured injured or knowing when something is a, a deal breaker that this is bad I need to stop I need to change it um and I need to seek help with something because you can't obviously there's only so much you can do to treat yourself it's not the best thing to do anyway and you're kind of limited I can't exactly massage my own leg or like not that massage is a great modality but I, I also I can't do some of the tests on myself that you would want to do to decide on an injury but I can certainly identify when I need to reach out for that support which I think is probably appreciated by our team physiotherapist because it means I nag him a lot less than some people do and you were in the Paralympics opening ceremony 2012 along with me um tell us what your role was and how did you how did you come to be in it so I was one of the aerialists. So I started, basically, um, I come from a ballet background and performing background, and I wanted to be part of 2012. So I signed up for a dance workshop for, it wasn't for para, like, it wasn't for disabled people specifically, it was a dance workshop for volunteers. Um, and I went to that, and I think it was for both, it was, it was just a general cast recruitment. And I... I went to that, I really enjoyed it. I did it in my chair because um, I cannot coordinate my feet well enough to dance without it now. And then they contacted me afterwards and I thought they were going to contact me and be like, you could be one of the volunteers in the ceremony, which is kind of what I was angling for. I just wanted to be part of it. And then they said, oh no, there's this opportunity. Would you like to come and audition for a different role? And they didn't really tell me much about the role. They basically said, are you scared of heights? And I said, no, and I'm a climber, it's fine. And they said, okay, cool. Like, can I turn up on this day? And I did. And um, it turned out it was an aerialist role audition. So they basically strung you up in a harness and made you kind of like twiddle around in the air and see what you could do, how expressive you were. Could you like orientate yourself and stuff like that? 
Um, and I really enjoyed it because obviously I'm a climber, like hanging from a harness is my thing. And like, I was like, this is so cool. No expectations as well. And then from that, it turned, and they hadn't quite told me what the role was then either. And then from that, then I was contacted and told that it was the opportunity to do the circus-based training. So to do, I can't remember, I think it was like eight weeks or 10 weeks at the circus base training in aerial stuff and then be part of the pro cast, if you like, for the various, for the opening ceremony. And I was like, yep, absolutely, that's fine. <laughs> like I 100% want to do that because I would have been happy to volunteer as a general anything, to be honest with you. So yeah, it was a, like, for me, it was like epic, dream come true. It, it was wasn't it really like you know for me as well like that thing of when I got the role of Miranda like oh you okay with heights yeah I'm fine 25 meters in the air I'm like oh okay yeah wow. I'm absolutely fine and that yeah that, but that feeling of being in a harness was so freeing like I yeah. hadn't been up that high before and being able to kind of do roly-polies was just like epic Yep. Until they made you have to do them really slowly, where you have to hold your body at each bit Stop. of a clock. And I was just like, oh, I hate this now. Um, but yeah, but it was, wasn't it? It was that feeling of 2012, everyone come together. Yep. That, and we were chatting before we came on the Zoom when we were around, making sh- we were told to make sure we have that moment that night to just take it all in. Yeah, look around and, yeah, breathe in the moment and try and make a memory from it and don't just let it go right breeze past you yeah and it's funny we've been told the same thing for tokyo by when our team was announced our performance director stood up and basically said exactly that don't go to the games and just let it wash over you and come home and then be like oh wow it happened and i don't really remember any of it try and take in as much as you can and for me it's my first games i think because of the restrictions around covid and not having family out there and things like that and supporters in a way it will almost make it easier to take in the moment because there's less kind of to take in there's less pomp and circumstances more just the race but equally then you can take in being part of wider the wider Paralympics GB team and I'm quite looking forward to that so and even with COVID we've got things like we've got like a it's not Facebook but it's like Facebook that's for the wider team and stuff so you can feel like you're part of something um, and I think it just gives it will give a bit more of an opportunity to kind of breathe in the moment and enjoy it. Yeah, not so, not so many distractions. Yeah, and almost I don't want to say less pressure because obviously I feel like I'm going to perform. It's performance based, but in a way, a bit less. It's less in your face pressure. I think like not having your family in the stands, and I'm not someone that my family comes to every race, so I'm not going to miss that. Um, I know they're going to be watching at home and I feel the sport and that's that's amazing but at the same time it just feels a bit it will be a bit more chilled and so therefore you can just focus on the performance bit and then enjoy the experience and our holding camp and everything I want to enjoy as much as, as enjoy is a strong word like if you're almost on the verge of vomiting doing a really hard bike session it's hard to say you enjoy it but ultimately you can still have that moment where you look around and be like oh wow this is a really cool place or I mean because we get to visit some really cool places even with the restrictions around training so so yeah and then my teammates are awesome so we're quite a close-knit quite a small team as sports go so it's I'm looking forward to just being able to kind of spend a bit of time as much as COVID allows with them and training with them and just enjoy their experience too and in a way that's cool that we're racing on different days so we can support each other what are you most looking forward to of being in Tokyo but yeah, experiencing it with everyone, with the teammates, well, like my teammates, yeah. and yeah. also first games, like, it's a massive honour, 
like I'm looking forward to just pulling on the kit and getting on the plane and being part being able to say I'm a Paralympian like regardless of the outcome that's like such a massive goal after so when 2012 happened I obviously watched was part of the ceremony and then our passes kind of gave us access to loads of sports so I got in the park and I I live really close to the Olympic Park and I still do so I could go to I went to stuff every single day and like I just watched sports and I was like oh it was so different to climbing where climbing is progressing so paraclimbing has progressed now so that there's crowds and uh it's more got a higher status within the climbing community and I know they're pushing towards Paralympic sport but when I did it, it was very much like, no one will come and watch. We were like the first people on at like 6pm when the main show was at 10, if you like, and not even really the warm-up act. So it just felt so cool at the Paralympics to see people pushing at the highest level and wearing that kit and representing their country at what is the highest level of sport. I was like, I really want to do that. And that was kind of why I went hunting for a sport. Even though I did climbing for four more years, I hunted for a sport at the same time that would allow me to be part of that if I was good enough obviously it was never a given but that was what drove me I was like I want to be a Paralympian I want to be part of that pinnacle of your sport and representing your country because it is an honour to like pull on the kit and get selected yeah and it feels an honour to have spent this time chatting with you tonight and thinking that you know you're going to be on a plane soon you're going to be you are going to be in Tokyo you are going to be representing GB and that that I feel really just really humbled that you've taken the time to chat to us. So thank you, Fran, and look forward to like seeing your success. And yeah, I'm wishing you loads of luck for your first Paralympic Games. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed being able to tell my story. And if it means someone else thinks, oh, maybe I'll give that a go. Or, oh, I might give drumming a go. Just because I've got an impairment doesn't mean you can't do it. But thank you, Fran, and definitely all the best, and we'll be watching you. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.